And welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Benched with Bubba, episode 62. Going to do a little NFL wildcard weekend preview along with the national championship game. And in order to do so, I am joined once again by a previous guest. You can find him on Twitter, at Skating Tripods. Uh, he's do, he does Bang the Book Radio daily. Lots of good content there. Adam Burke. Adam, how are we doing? I'm doing well, Bubba. How are you doing today, man? Good, good. Good to have you back and uh, breaking down some action. Hopefully you're staying a little warm with uh, everything that's taking place out your direction. I'm trying to. Yeah. I'm failing for the most part, but I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like that's a consensus going on out there. Um, before we get into the four wildcard games and the national title game, your episode on Friday involves uh, a little recap of the Super Contest. Uh, can you can you let the listeners know kind of what, what the final verdict was out there? It looked like a pretty competitive deal, as always. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I think the closest comparison when you talk about the Super Contest is the World Series of Poker main event. I mean, it's something that you know has really, really expanded and grown over the last couple of years. And you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, there's a large element of skill involved, but there's also a very large element of luck involved. And, and I, that's why I liken it to the main event. You know, if you don't run real good on those coin flip hands, a pocket pair against a couple of overs, or you don't hit a couple of two outers on the river, you really don't have a chance to win the main event. The Super Contest is a lot like that, too. I mean, you need to run on the right side of variance pretty much for all 17 weeks of the NFL season because you only you have to pick five games a week against stale numbers on Wednesdays, 85 picks total. So the margin for error is very small. The ability to make up ground, very, very small. This was the first year that I did it by myself uh, with my Bang the Book podcast entry. Went 4-1 and one in the last week to wind up 44-40-1 on the season. So I was pretty happy with how I finished things up. I was actually pretty strong over the last four or five weeks. But the contest is a grind, man. It, it sounds really easy. You know, you just pick five NFL games against stale numbers. It's just it's not nearly as easy as it sounds. It's very complex. There's some game theory that comes into play. But I love doing it. It's a fascinating thing to talk about, and it's only going to continue to grow in popularity, especially if legalization becomes a reality. Yeah, that's a great great point on the legalization uh, factor. Could you see this potentially having like separate tournaments around the country or just one massive one without everyone having to go to Vegas and take care of it with like proxies and everything? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I honestly hadn't thought of legalization thing until my guest on Friday's show, James Salinas, who won the Super Contest in 2015. He's better known as Rounding Again out there. He mentioned it to me on, uh, when we were recording. We recorded that segment on Wednesday, and it was something that hadn't even crossed my mind yet. To think about the impact of, of legalization and the repeal of PASPA and what that would mean for the Super Contest, I mean, I honestly don't know. You know, I, I don't know if any other places would be equipped to take on that type of undertaking. But at the same time, if you're talking about being able to enter from anywhere in the country and not have a proxy, you know, I, I don't know what happens for the, for the staff there at the Westgate in terms of compiling all the picks, keeping all the records. You know, I mean, you're going to have so many more tiebreaker scenarios in play. You right now, the contest pays the top 50 plus ties. That was with 2,748 entrants. If this thing doubles over 5,000, you know, do you pay the top 100? Do you pay the top 150? It's going to take a long time to get to that point. But, you know, now that it, the seed is kind of planted in my mind, it is something that I have to think about. I will say this. I, I think in terms of any other contests at other points, you know, or other places throughout the country, 
I think that'd be a long time down the road. Maybe you'd have some local things, but something with, with the national reach that the Super Contest already has, I think that would be exclusive to Las Vegas. Yeah, uh, that, that would make sense because, like you said, there are a lot of other like local contests that people run. You know, Twitter had the Super 7 this year. That was a lot of fun. There's a, there's a lot of different angles people can go with, but there is, I guess, some exclusivity about the Super Contest being Vegas. So I, I can see that definitely being an option. And the point that the Westgate staff, okay, so say you're in New Jersey, how's the Westgate staff take care of that kind of stuff? That can be very, very complicated. Because I don't think they want to go electronically with everything like that. No, and, and also, so. too, I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to some people in the industry, and I was out in Vegas around Thanksgiving, and I was talking to a buddy of mine that works for William Hill, and, you know, I was talking to some of the other people out there. And, you know, eventually having multiple points of entry, so to speak, for the Super Contest or something comparable would be great. But it's going to take long enough to come up with the framework for legalization, to come up with the tax rates on a state-by-state basis, you know, to get all the infrastructure in place. A lot of plans have already been laid, but, you know, obviously once legalization happens, you start talking more about the percentages. The government wants this cut. The books need this cut. You know, what kind of VIG is going to be the standard from state to state? So there are so many other considerations that, you know, putting together a contest like this, it's not even secondary. It's not even tertiary. It's just way down the list. So, you know, the idea that you could enter the super contest and put your picks in, you know, personally online on a website that's a secure portal for it. That I think is something that's very realistic, but in terms of multiple super contests or, you know, multiple places running one, I don't think it'll ever happen. I think logistically it's just too hard. Well, the, the last thing I could, I could think of is the way they could enshrine it around the super contest, but have smaller ones everywhere. It, it goes back to the very beginning, the way you mentioned the world series of poker, where they have smaller tournaments, satellite tournaments, they could encapsulate it that way with one voice as a super contest, but then maybe put it around the country. Just an idea. So who knows? Yeah, that would be cool. And and honestly, I mean, that, that is an idea that makes sense. You know, if you start talking about like a, just to use an example, because I know there are several casinos and I know that they've already gone through some discussions in, in the state legislature, something like Pennsylvania, you know, you run a multi-casino contest to where you know maybe the first prize gets x amount of money plus an entry into the super contest or the super contest gold for the next year you know maybe that's something that they could look to do maybe they you know and if you still can't do your picks from wherever maybe the the grand prize includes you know a flight package a hotel you know, you're still responsible for your proxy fee but you know, something like that is is certainly plausible but you know part of the problem there too is you know, what is Westgate's reach? If if the Las Vegas Hilton was still running the super contest and, you know, you had opportunities to partner with other Hilton properties or whatever else, you know, then that's something that might work out. But with it being run by Westgate now, you know, maybe that uh, kind of cloudies up the picture a little bit. Yeah, definitely. That could, that could have an impact. Well, it'll be fun to see how that all develops. And another regular season year in the book leads us to the wild card weekend where we have four Somewhat interesting games for Rattler. Well, three of the four are touchdown or higher favorites, as we kind of tend to see this this time of year. We'll start with the first game on Saturday, the Titans at the Chiefs. Chiefs right now eight-point favorites. Totals around 44. Um, the betting public's slightly on the Titans' side of things. Uh, what are you seeing or hearing on this one? I mean, as far as what I'm seeing, I'm seeing one team that's a hell of a lot better than the other team. 
And that's the one thing that really stands out here to me about this game is that, you know, for Kansas City, they had those problems in the middle of the season, started 5-0, and then all of a sudden found themselves at 6-6, six and six, rattled off four straight to, you know, get to 10-6. and six. And to be completely honest with you, the first two games there when they were 500 to move to 7-6 and six and 8-6 and six were effectively playoff games for them. With what was going on in the AFC West standings with Oakland and the Chargers right there, those were not to say must-win games because I think that's an overused cliche, but they were games that they really needed to have from a, a you know a standing standpoint in terms of the AFC West. So the fact that they took care of business so comfortably in those two games, Chiefs were back. I liked them in Week 17 against Denver. I didn't take them in the Super Contest. I probably should have. Uh, but this is a Chiefs team that got back on track. You know, they've started forcing some turnovers here lately as well. Tennessee, there are just so many problems with the structure of this Titans team. Their defense has gotten a lot better. I give Dick LeBeau a ton of credit for that. But I don't think Terry Rubisky maximizes the skill set of Marcus Mariota. I don't think Mike Malarkey is the right guy to develop him. So when you get into this one-game sample and you start talking about the importance of coaching, you know, Kansas City's got Andy Reid, who – is notorious for getting conservative in the playoffs, so the big numbers are worry. But Matt Nagy's a guy getting talked about for a lot of head coaching jobs. Bob Sutton's done a decent job with this defense, although statistically they're not great. So I think there's a coaching advantage for the Chiefs. If they don't turn the football over, so that's a big advantage for them as well. But the problem is you're talking about a really big number here. And if Kansas City gets out to a 14-17 point lead in the first half, what's to stop them from looking ahead to next week? What's to stop them from looking down the road and saying, okay, we've got this game under control. We're going to run the football a ton. We're going to play for next week. And that's the concern here with a big number is that, you know, you don't know if you get a full 60-minute effort from Kansas City. Now, on the flip side, if Tennessee's down big, you know, what do they do in the second half? I don't know. But not really a big surprise to see the money slightly leaning towards Tennessee here because you are talking about a big number. Initially, the movement from Seven with extra juice on Kansas City up to eight and a half or nine made sense. The buyback coming later in the week also makes sense. And it's also kind of correlated with the total coming down a little bit from 45 to 44, 44 and a half, that type of thing. Anytime you've got a lower total, you feel more comfortable taking the points. So, you know, from a, a correlation standpoint, it makes some sense as well. Yeah, I was about to say, when you see a total that low and we're coming, I, I stated on the NFL show I did the other day that, um, Kansas City at home, their defense much, much better. Has The stat was they haven't given up more than 21 points since week one of 2016 at Arrowhead, um, facing a Tennessee team that just plays so, so slow, one of the slowest paces in football. They're going to want to pound the rock. And I, I agree with the fact um, Andy Reid has proven time and time again that he likes to take his foot off the gas, as you kind of basically said, when they're up 14, 17 points, what's to stop them from, you know, just coasting into the, the win. He, we've seen that so many times with Andy Reid football teams. So I, I agree with everything. I think it's going to be an interesting game. The Chiefs actually have firepower this year, or at least they're letting Alex Smith show some firepower. Um, and you basically said it. Tennessee is just a mess, might not be the right word, but as a team, it's just such an ugly situation. There's no consistency week in and week out. The only consistency we'll see this week maybe is DeMarco Murray's already out, so Derrick Henry's the one back that they're just going to feed over and over and over again. So it uh, makes for an interesting game, but I, I agree. Chiefs should be aligned for a, a W here, but I like taking the points in the under with you as well. 
Yeah, and, and I think, too, I mean, this is one of those games, and to be completely honest with you, it's been really challenging for me on Bang the Book Radio to talk about full game lines because so much of the betting value nowadays is being able to tap into the in-game markets, getting an idea, getting a feel for the game, and then playing accordingly from that point. Unless you're going to tease Kansas City down this weekend, which is going to be a very, very popular play. A lot of people are going to take Kansas City down to minus two, minus two and a half, probably pair them with Jacksonville, spoiler alert. But, you know, I think in this game, if Kansas City does jump out ahead early by 14, 17, something like that, taking a live play for the second half on Tennessee, when you're getting an adjusted number, you know, maybe plus 14, plus 17, depending on what the score actually looks like, you know, that may be the optimal way to go here is to just wait and play Tennessee later on. No, I, I like that a lot because you could easily see Kansas City jumping up to a big lead, double-digit lead, and you'll get a nice, nice value on Tennessee. Same time, say Tennessee jumps out to an early lead, watch the KC line if you feel like it. You might get better value than in a teaser. Um, the live betting, it's such a, an, an insane development in the game, and it's a blast. Uh, I remember the first time I got to experience it live was – at the Silver Legacy in Reno, it's a Will Hill book, and we were just playing that all day long. It was wild. Uh, it was conference title weekend last year, and it was something else. So, very good point with the the live betting options because this could be a great. A lot of these games this weekend could be a great piece for that. Yeah, and let's check. You know what? That's the future yeah. of the industry. Honestly, as, as far as I'm concerned, oh, yeah. I mean the, the the full game lines are just so tight. You know, odds makers aren't fully embracing analytics yet, but they are using some elements of them in terms of setting the lines and you know i mean when you talk about live betting you're going up against an algorithm you know pretty much you're not going up against the rest of the market you're going up against an algorithm and it's an algorithm that that can't pick up on a lot of things you know i mean if if derrick henry gets hurt early on in this game tennessee already doesn't have demarco murray the live line's not going to reflect that the betting market will make the line reflect that as much as possible but there aren't actual odds makers looking at the live betting screen, adjusting these numbers, it's largely based on an algorithm. So when you talk about foul trouble in the NBA or something like that, those are things you can take advantage of from a live standpoint. And again, that's something that you really want to pay attention to here in the playoffs, because theoretically these should be the tightest lines of the season. Yeah, they they should be for sure. Um, Let's go into the Falcons at the Rams, the Rams, Man, what a turnaround without Jeff Fisher in play there. Heck of a season. Line opened at five and a half. Dropped all the way down to seven for the Rams. Back to five and a half. So we're seeing some movement there by the betting public and the, probably more of the professional betters, to tell you the truth. Um, still slight lean to the Rams from most people. And everyone's liking this over at uh, 48, which is tied with New Orleans for the highest over on the slate. Um, what are you seeing in this matchup of an Atlanta team that just can't put a consistency together at all, especially on the road? Yeah, of all the playoff games here this weekend, my favorite side play is probably in this game, and it would be Atlanta. And I know that that's a, a tough way to look here because they have been such an inconsistent team. They are making the cross-country travel. And look, there are some narrative things that I think are a little bit overblown in this game, like the fact that Atlanta has more experience in this situation Matt Ryan obviously has more experience than Jared Goff. I get it. I think that is something that could potentially have an impact. But once you get between the lines, it's a football game, and that's what it is. You know, So I think maybe in terms of the mental preparation for this game, Atlanta has an edge. Once you get between the lines, it's all about who's out there playing. And for me, when I look at this game, 
know, I grabbed six and a half yesterday because I was afraid that it was going away. Obviously, it has. You can get a couple of stray sixes out there. But when I look at this game, statistically, Atlanta is just a much better team. Plus 0.8 yards per play on the season. They were third in yards per play with 5.9, only allowed 5.1. The Rams, 5.8 yards per play. So they were up there in the top 10, 5.3 yards per play allowed. But Atlanta's got one of the best yards per play differentials in the NFL this season. The pro- There were two problems. One, they only forced 16 turnovers. And two, they were only 50% in the red zone. So, you know, in terms of those things that, that really help you cover numbers as a favorite and create some of those blowouts that help your point differential, they didn't have those. They didn't have a whole lot of short fields, whereas the Rams did. I mean, the Rams forced 28 turnovers this year. They were fifth in the NFL. And you know, they weren't that much better in the red zone, 55%. So they just took advantage of some of their short fields had some scoring plays from just outside the red zone. You know, does that translate over here in this one-game sample? It could. I mean, the Rams led the league in points for a reason. They led the league in average starting field position for a reason. But I think Atlanta takes care of the football. I think Matt Ryan's played a lot better in this Steve Sarkeesian system of late. The one concern I have in this game, and the reason why I'd be happy to take six and a half as opposed to five and a half or, you know, wherever this number winds up going, I think the Rams have a coaching advantage. I love Dan Quinn. I think Dan Quinn is a phenomenal defensive mind. I think he's a pretty good head coach. Steve Sarkeesian, I'm not totally sold on. Marquand Manuel, I'm not sold on. You know, Wade Phillips is a genius. I mean, this is a guy that's very, very good at running a defense. And what the Rams have done this year is that Sean McVay, yes, he has the title of head coach. He's running the offense. You know, when they're on defense, Sean McVay's talking to Jared Goff. He's talking to Todd Gurley. He's figuring out what they want to do with the next possession. Wade Phillips is running everything on defense, and that's a great luxury to have. Matt LaFleur, the last two years, he's been the quarterback's coach, last offensive coordinator of the guy with the highest adjusted net yards per pass attempt in the NFL. So he's a hot commodity here when it comes to you know some of these open coaching jobs and all that. The Rams have that edge. But I think Atlanta is a better team than people realize. You know, they're like I said, statistically, they're better than the 10 and 6 record that they had at least from a yards per play differential standpoint. And I think that, you know, they were a little bit undervalued here with the movement that we've seen up in the line. I think this line closes about where it opened in the four and a half range may go down to four. Cause I think Atlanta is the popular sharp side here, but I also think this, this is probably the most compelling, most watchable game of the weekend too. Yeah, that part I agree. It's a lot. Of, I'm looking forward to this game because there's a lot of factors as can the Falcons, you know, they looked like they were dead in the waters at one point this season. They came back strong, made the playoffs. They are experienced, all that good stuff. But then you have the Rams, who they've been a great story all year. The development, Gurley finally doing his thing. You have Goff. The coaching staff, like you said, is, is outstanding there. Wade Phillips, that defense, it swarms. And you mentioned the turnover factor, and that that's tremendous. You can't overlook that. But um, in the grand scheme of things, this could be quite a – it reminds me not maybe as much as that Eagles-Rams game we saw where it was back and forth and back and forth, but it has that potential. It has potential to be very, very, very interesting. If you had to take a side on the total, um, what are you looking at on that one? I would have to look at the under on the total. I mean, I think Wade Phillips has a good game plan here, and I think that Dan Quinn also has a good game plan. And you know, like I said, I mean, Atlanta was 50% in the red zone. The Rams were 55% in the red zone. The Rams don't really have a kicker. So I think there are some – I think both of these teams will move the football quite a bit. 
but I think there could be some points left on the field here in this game. So I would have to look at the under. It's not something I would be in a hurry to play. I think public betters will continue to drive that number up. Mm-hmm. And I think probably on Saturday afternoon, you could come back and, and wind up playing the under here and, and maybe get some value on it. And again, I mean, it, it may not win. You know, both these teams, if they move the football, cash in on their red zone chances, then this thing could fly over the total. But, you know, I don't think Steve Sarkeesian is a great play designer, at least not the level that Kyle Shanahan was. And, you know, they've run the – it seems like they've had more of an emphasis on running the football this year. I looked at their play distribution. It was about the same as last year. But, you know, maybe they're running it more in the red zone or something like that. It just doesn't have the same feel for me with Atlanta here this year. So, I think the under would be the way to look. One other point I'll throw out here about the side, and then I imagine we want to move on from this game, strength of schedule. Strength of schedule is a big deal to me. I mean, I think, you know, if you're tested, if you play really good competition – then, you know, it is something that should set you up for success. In terms of the strength of schedule metric over at Pro Football Reference, played the fourth toughest schedule in the NFC. The Rams played the third weakest schedule in the NFC. Rams were a third-place team last year, so they played a third-place schedule. Falcons won their division. They played a first-place schedule, plus the tough NFC South. And dating back to 2002, the higher strength of schedules at 69% against the spread in the wild card weekend round. So I think that gives Atlanta a little bit of an edge as well. No, I completely agree. It should make for an interesting, interesting game. Uh, we'll head on to Sunday now. Uh, a beat-up Buffalo Bills team with a chance of not even having LaShawn McCoy in the backfield. Goes into Jacksonville, uh, kind of the Cinderella story of the year against the top-rated defense in football. Um, the Jags opened up around a seven-point favorite. It's been driven all the way down to nine, back up to about eight and a half at the moment. Totals around 39 and a half. That's been dropping from what I've noticed. Um, this just has one of those slow-paced feels to it that Jacksonville on paper should coast, but you never know what's your, what's your view on this one. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, in terms of the four games, this is the one I'd, I'd least want to be involved in from a financial standpoint and probably the game I'd least want to watch. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned this on the show throughout the week. I'm very happy for both of these fan bases. I'm a Sabres fan when it comes to the NHL. So, you know, I, I follow a lot of Buffalo-centric people on Twitter, and it was great to see the not just the reactions from the players, but also the fans. And, you know, I mean, I'm from Cleveland. I know what it's like to be kicked and then kicked again while you're down in terms of your sports teams. So very happy for the Bills fans to have their team here in this spot. And, of course, you know, they may have to do it without LaShawn McCoy. And even if LaShawn McCoy can go, you know, how effective is this guy? Charles Clay, how effective is he? I mean, Charles Clay is a guy that only played 13 of the 16 games, was the highest leading receiver. If you factor in the backs, LaShawn McCoy was the highest. But Clay was the highest leading receiver, had the same number of targets as Zay Jones. But Clay had 49 catches and Zay Jones had 27. So for Buffalo, if LaShawn McCoy is not 100%, and he's clearly not, I don't know how they move the football here. And they didn't move the football during the regular season anyway, 4.8 yards per play. The problem is, how do you trust Blake Bortles to go out there and win <laughs> you a game by double digits? Yeah. That's the problem. What, what Jacksonville does really well is they stop the pass, they pressure the quarterback, and they force turnovers. Well, Buffalo's not going to throw it a whole lot. Tyrod Taylor is about as mobile as it gets for a quarterback. And Buffalo doesn't turn the football over. Buffalo had 16 turnovers this year. Jacksonville forced 33. If they can't force turnovers and create short fields, this Buffalo defense isn't great. But you know, I don't trust Jacksonville to sustain a whole lot of possessions here. So 
you know, I, I think that there are a lot of unknowns to this game, especially, you know, how healthy McCoy is, how well Bortles is going to play. I mean, by default, I'd almost have to look at the under 39 and a half, but that's a very low total in an NFL where they want points. They want as excitement as possible in this, as much excitement as possible in this game. I won't be too involved with this one, but like I said, I think you'll see a lot of Kansas City and Jacksonville teasers. If you have to get involved with this game, you know, Jacksonville teased down the the total teased up or Jacksonville teased down paired with Kansas City, probably the way to look. Yeah, yeah, I, I see Jacksonville winning this game, but th- that nine is it it's big for like you said a Blake Bortles led team. One thing Buffalo can do on defense is they have a pretty decent swarming secondary. Um, that 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 makes plays. They force turnovers, so that that'll make things interesting with Bortles in there, who's played great the last month or so. But it is Blake Bortles. Um, if they can't get Lashawn McCoy in the backfield, that'll make things really interesting for Buffalo. But Tyrod, if they let him loose, I agree, could uh, make it interesting using his legs in that matchup because you can beat Jacksonville on the ground. Um, be very successful on the ground versus Jacksonville. So that'll make a very interesting game. But yeah, out of the four games this week least favorite it's great to see as you said the fan base is getting some some love here but very very tough to to get behind this game but again two yeah a game to get behind is the last game of the day the carolina panthers at the new orleans saints totals at 48 uh spreads at seven for the saints a third time a matchup between the two teams cams beat up but keeps getting it done not throwing great but running like wild um, what are you liking in the New Orleans-Carolina game? I have such a hard time with this game, too. I mean, when you look at this game, again, statistically, New Orleans is the drastically better team. 6.3 yards per play led the NFL, 5.4 yards per play allowed, which wasn't great. It's the second highest mark of the playoff teams. But when you consider where New Orleans has been defensively over the last few years, massive upgrade for them. Carolina now. Okay, Carolina went 11-5. and five. They had five yards per play, allowed 5.3 yards per play. They were minus one in turnover margin. Statistically, this this looks nothing like an 11-5 and five team. And that's what's hard for me to wrap my head around here in this spot. Now, they played a very difficult schedule. In fact, I think they played the toughest schedule. So, you know, I mean, for them to go 11-5, and five, no matter how they did it against the group of teams that they played, really, really fantastic for them. I give them a lot of credit for that. The concern that I have here is that, like I said, five yards per play. How much can they move the football? Because we know New Orleans should move the football. New Orleans very good at passing it, very good at throwing it. You know, extremely efficient pass offense for Drew Brees, and you know Drew Brees also didn't have to throw the ball a whole lot this year. So, you know, that's something that that could extend the life on his arm a little bit here in the NFL playoffs. And when you think back to when Denver won the Super Bowl with Peyton Manning a few years ago, there was nothing left in that arm. And, and he had a decent workload throughout the regular season. Nothing left in the postseason. Breeze you know, still has the great arm, 38 years old. But the fact that he's been used as little as he has been throughout the year, I think is something that really does benefit New Orleans, not just in this game, but over the course of the playoffs. And I have a hard time betting against Ron Rivera and Cam Newton getting this many points. But if I had to play something, this looks like such a statistical mismatch. It'd be New Orleans or nothing. Yeah, I'm with you. I think this is Breeze's, as weird as it sounds, coming out party for the year. He's been so quiet this year, uh, enjoying Kamara and Ingram's success in the backfield, turning a high 
octane offense through the air into a high octane offense on the ground. But I think this is the time in that stadium, in the dome, to remind people what he can do. He still has weapons out there. Ted Ginn can go deep. You have Thomas, who looked good uh, coming back from his injury last week. Fleener hasn't done anything all year for the most part. He's still actually – but I think Breeze could have a big, big week. And Cam, his, his receiving core is so depleted. Funches sure is there. But, man, you're looking at guys like Benson as the number two or a slot receiver. They're so beat up. Olsen coming back does help, obviously. But the New Orleans defense isn't complete garbage like it used to be. It's actually pretty decent. And uh, that Saints offense, I could see having a big week. But these two teams have played really close this year in, in their two previous matchups. So, yeah, I agree. It's very, very tough to see how this plays out. Uh, it was 31-21 of December, and then 34-13. New Orleans had their number twice already this year, and I, I don't see that changing much. No, I mean, the the one caveat that I'll mention here for Carolina, and this is something that we talked about on, on Thursday's edition of the show, is that Christian McCaffrey has been so much more effective over the second half of the season. And I'll pull these numbers up here uh, that I was looking at yesterday. But, you know, in the second half of the year, games 9 through 16, McCaffrey's got like 4.7 yards per carry. And coincidentally, Carolina's obviously been playing pretty well in that span. So, They've figured out a way to use this guy and really maximize his skill set. 8.8 yards per reception over the last eight games. I think it was 7.7 in the first eight games. So, you know, it's not a significant adjustment in terms of his production as a receiver, but as a running back, it has been. And when you consider that Jonathan Stewart has really never lived up to the hype that he came out of college with, you know, maybe that's something that does help McCaffrey and the Panthers here in this game. And not only that, but going forward as well. If McCaffrey has success running the football, they can keep it away from New Orleans. Maybe this is a spot where Carolina can't hang within the number. But, I mean, this is a game This is a game built for live betting, to be totally honest with you. You know, when you look at what no, New Orleans just, is doing, you know. can they take away Cam Newton's running ability? You know, are they sacrificing coverage to spy him? Can they figure out how to get Christian McCaffrey down in space? If they have the right game plan for McCaffrey and Newton, I don't know how Carolina moves the football because, like I said, they had five yards per play this year. And if you take away their two top weapons, you know, then I don't know how they have a whole lot of success here. And I think New Orleans does get theirs throughout the game. So, like I said, I mean, it'd have to be New Orleans or nothing. But, you know, uh, again, Atlanta is about the only really strong side opinion I've had this week. And I think there are some teaser options or some live betting plays in the other three games. Out of the four wild card games, is Atlanta your dog that you see winning outright, or do you see all the favorites advancing? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, I I wouldn't I I would have a hard time taking Atlanta as an underdog if I didn't think that they could win the game. I think there's certainly a way that this sets up that they do have an opportunity to win the game. And you know, if it is a close game, and I certainly anticipate that it will be taking the six and a half. You know, Greg the Leg being out for the Rams could wind up having an impact in their ability to you know win a close game. Because if you, you know, it's going to be really tough for a young quarterback like Jared Goff. If he gets his team in position to score points and they come away empty because they miss a field goal, you know, or get, throw a pick in the red zone, something like that, you know, given the stakes, I guess maybe that's one area where it could play in that Atlanta has more experience in this situation. But, you know, I mean, I, I think Atlanta would have to be the dog I would look at. I don't give Tennessee much of a chance. Buffalo with the LaShawn McCoy injury, they don't have much of a chance. Carolina, like I said, statistically, it's just such a mismatch that I doubt it. But 
You know, I mean, Cam does things in the playoffs. Ron Rivera, very good head coach. Wouldn't shock me, but I, you know, if I had to play a money line dog, Atlanta's easily the one. Okay. Let's go to Monday night, the national championship game. First off, was the Rose Bowl one of the best games you've seen in a long, long time? That was amazing. It, yeah, it was. And you know what, though? I, I will say this. I was singing the praises of Lincoln Riley. I was texting anybody that would listen to me. I had a man crush on Lincoln Riley. I was ready to go and marry the guy in the first half. In the second half, woof, man, it, he just yeah. the play calling was awful. He took the game yeah, out of yeah. Baker Mayfield's hands in overtime. I, I don't know if he panicked. I don't know if it was a youth thing. I don't know what it was. Kirby Smart deserves a ton of credit, though, because him and Mel Tucker figured it out in the second half. Held Oklahoma to like 150 yards. The first half was incredible. The way the game ended was was quite fascinating as well. But you know, I, I I just I can't get over how Oklahoma fell apart in the second half. Yeah, yeah, it was rough, especially like you said in overtime. The play calling, like they're trying trickery and things they just didn't need to do. They they forgot what got them there, and it was it was mind boggling to watch. Like in the first half, the dude ran a wide receiver RPO on a reverse, and I'm like. This guy's groundbreaking. Like he's an offensive guru. And then in the second half, I have no idea what was going on. And you know, uh, but it certainly does make for so here's the thing. I would have loved to have seen Oklahoma in the national championship game because I think that what they do schematically is what you can do to beat Alabama. But yes. you know, now that we have Alabama and Georgia, you know, I, I think th- there's a lot more that that comes into looking at you know, the real X's and O's of this game. I think it takes a deeper dive. I would have played Oklahoma against Alabama almost right away. But here, I think you have to study this matchup quite a bit more. Yeah, it's it, it, um, in Atlanta, so George, in Georgia's backyard, but still not like it's a long trip for the Bama faithful that will travel. Um, it opened up around a five, five and a half, depending on where you're shopping. It's already down to three and a half and fours. You got a total of 44. They haven't played each other since 2015. But, um, you know, the whole narrative street out there about Saban versus former, you know, staff and all that good stuff and Kirby Smart coming into town. This game, I think, is going to be a lot better than people think, or do you think it's going to be just a Bama trucking? I think it's going to be a good game, but I I don't know if it's going to be the good game that people want it to be. I mean, you look back at the last two national championship games between Clemson and Alabama, absolute shootouts. Totally fascinating to watch. Games that ended after 1 o'clock, I think, because there were so many plays, so many stoppages, so many points, all that type of thing. This game, to me, feels like more of a throwback. This game feels like what we used to consider SEC football with really good defense, pretty marginal offense. Now, both these teams had good efficiency metrics overall offensively, but because they're playing each other and there's a lot of familiarity here, not just with Saban and Smart, but you know, players that were recruited to both schools, um, you know, they haven't played since 2015, but there's still there's not a whole lot of unknown between these two teams. And and that was something that Kirby Smart talked about in his halftime interview when Georgia played Oklahoma is I didn't have my team ready to play. We just weren't ready to go. And I don't blame them for that. Playing that Oklahoma tempo and playing mm-hmm. a guy like, like like Lincoln Riley is so hard to do. This is a much more conventional game. You got a lot of NFL talent here, but if people want that 45 to 40 type game, they're clearly not getting it here. Yeah, to me, this has the feel of it's going to be, you know, kind of back and forth, back and forth. Saban does this thing almost like the Clemson game where, you know, it wasn't really close, but it was. And in the second half, 
family just kind of separates themselves. That's the way I feel it coming on, but it seems like everybody does. Does Georgia have a ch- – well, obviously have a chance they're there. Do you think Georgia has a legit chance to pull this off? I mean, I think they do. At four and a half, I like Georgia. At three and a half, I don't necessarily love it as much because, like I said, I think this is a pretty low-scoring game. We should see the total continue to creep down. It's gone from 47 to 44, although that may be a stopping point because we might see public money coming in on the over here. Uh, I think it's going to be a close game. So in that respect, you know, if turnovers bounce Georgia's way, I think they certainly have a chance. Now, if I'm Kirby Smart and Jim Chaney and Mel Tucker, it's the national championship game, so I get it. You don't want to do anything that's you know too far out of your comfort zone. But also, if I'm Georgia, I'm looking at this game as I'm playing with house money. You know, I mean, yes. Alabama probably should have won the SEC, uh, the SEC conference championship game, but they didn't get there because they lost to Auburn. Georgia was down two touchdowns going into halftime last week, prevailed in overtime in what wound up being basically a coin flip game. You're playing with house money here. I mean, I would do a lot of things that Alabama's not expecting. I would throw the football more. I would do a lot of two-bag sets with Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle. I would have a lot of RPOs. I'd you know, put myself in position to really confuse what is the weakest part of the Alabama defense right now. That's the linebacker corp because they just have so many injuries there. Anthony Jennings isn't going to play. Sean Deion Hamilton was out for the coin toss last week in sweatpants. So if Georgia can have success with that, I think they can definitely pull the upset. The thing that I don't love about this game is – when you watch Georgia last week, when Baker Mayfield got out of the pocket, their pursuit was phenomenal. Jalen Hurts is so much more mobile than Baker Mayfield. And, and that's yeah. the thing that concerns me is can Georgia create negative plays? You know, can they get Jalen Hurts out of the pocket and force him to make mistakes? I don't know if they can do that. But because I think this is a close game, I certainly think Georgia has a chance to win it. Typically, what I suggest is if you're going to play an underdog like this, you sprinkle the money line a little bit. I don't think I'd have that recommendation here, though. Uh, you could okay. I got your sense. You're saying maybe Bama wins, but it's three or less type thing. Tight, tight game finish. I think so. I mean, or they, I mean, or they blow them out. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's that's also a possibility too. At which point, you know, the four and a half really never had a chance. So, you know, why would you double down on it yeah. and play the money line as well? I mean, this could very well set up like Alabama Clemson last week, where Georgia just can't move the football, and it wouldn't shock me. But I think that you know one of the differences here is that. Georgia has a play-action passing game, and I don't love Kelly Bryant's arm talent. I love his tenacity, his ability to move around. I think Jake Fromm has some more arm talent than that. and I mean, we saw it on several occasions in that game against Oklahoma where the play-action pass can be a thing. You know, Maybe you take some shots early on in the game. That's what I mean about playing with house money. You know, If you're Georgia and you want to try to run between the tackles and beat Alabama, you're probably not going to do it. So no. be creative. You know, do some different things to get some different looks. Motion Chubb out, keep Michelle in the backfield, vice versa. I'd love to see them do that. I don't know if it's within the capacity of Jim Chaney and Kirby Smart to do that. But if it is, then this game becomes a lot more interesting than I think people are giving it credit for. Yeah, um, I like to see the idea of, you know, Jake Fromm throwing a lot more. The kid is super talented, obviously. And if you can beat Alabama through the air, which you can at times this year, I think that's a great call. And then getting Sony Michelle out in space, we saw how freakishly fast he's been in his whole career, but that Rose Bowl just showcased it to a T. It was ridiculous watching him break away on stuff. Get him in open space, and you, you might have some big play capabilities that uh, keep you in the game. So I like those calls a lot there. Because if you try to play conventional with Alabama, 
eventually Saban's going to wear you down and get you. So it's just how it works. That's Saban 101. You got to get creative against him. So totally agree with that a ton. Now, one thing I want right. to say for everybody out there is that yeah. if you follow along in the markets now, this national championship game has effectively become college's Super Bowl. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of prop betting options available, most of them that are available for the Super Bowl. Will a team score three straight times? You know, longest field goal props. Will there be a two-point conversion? Will there be a safety? Will the game go to overtime? All that stuff that you see with the Super Bowl will be out there for the national championship game. Probably Saturday uh, at places like Five Dimes and Bet Online that like to open the market. Sunday everywhere else, and then on into Monday you can handicap that as well. That is the way that not only would I approach this game, but also looking ahead to the Super Bowl, you know, approach it that way too. It's a much less efficient market to look around for props and try to bet into this standalone number where we've got what fourteen data points on both teams, and we know exactly what we're going to get from them. You know, there's going to be a lot more opportunity in the prop betting market. And you know that's something that I would recommend to listeners to go and check out. If you want to bet this game, you know, there's no shame in betting the props and, and spreading your money out that way with something where you know you can get some more edges as opposed to you know what looks like a really tight game from both a side and total standpoint. I like that angle a lot. That's a great point. We all and it's overlooked. It's a great great point because everyone comes Super Bowl. It's oh let's where's the prop sheet? Let's break the props down, so on and so forth. But no one ever I talks about the, the national championship game and I think it's a great point. You could definitely exploit it against teams where you have a much familiar base with you. Like you said, you know what you're going to get the props. You could definitely take advantage of that. Cause I, I, I enjoy the Super Bowl props. There's always a couple on there that you look at and go, that's too easy. And sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, but it makes it a whole different way to watch the game. A whole, a lot fun, a lot more fun at times. I like that idea a lot, a lot. That's good. Um, at Bang the Book Radio, now that football's winding down, what do you guys have in store come you know, springtime? Well, we do a lot of college basketball stuff. We'll do some college basketball conference tournament preview shows once we get into late February and on into early March. Uh, you know, we're going to try to focus a little bit more on the hockey markets as well over the next few weeks because you know, I, I think that's a, a relatively inefficient market. I think it's getting a lot more efficient, but it's one of those markets where you don't have a ton of public investment. A lot of times you've got significant sharp investment with guys that use the advanced metrics and the analytics. And, you know, a lot of times those line moves are, are pretty, pretty sharp in the NHL, whereas you can get some public induced line moves in some of the other markets. So we'll talk about NHL and college basketball, some NBA stuff as well. And then uh, once we get into February, I'll be doing my MLB season win total preview series over at bangthebook.com. And I mean, it's uh, I think last year I wound up writing somewhere around, 108,000 words or something like that on the 30 teams. So they're very, very detailed, very in-depth. Every team's about, I would say, 2,800 words or more. Uh, but, you know, I, I factor in everything that goes into the equation of playing a season win total. And, you know, baseball is my passion. I know it's yours as well, Bubba. So I'm thinking spring. I'm thinking warm thoughts. And I'm looking forward to diving into that. Yes, yes. I've slowly started diving into baseball. and got some stuff coming up for that as well. So – we might have to talk again and 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 talk totals later on because I, I enjoy them. I've been dabbling in them more and more the last couple of years, um, so we'll definitely chat on that one. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. But, you know what? Why don't you get me on for uh, get me on for episode sixty nine, and we'll do it with that. It'll be so nice. We'll definitely do it. 
<laughs> but all right, man. I appreciate it as always. Great breakdowns of the four wild card games and the national championship with some super contest info sprinkled in. And uh, the more and more the legalization of gambling becomes a possibility, all all these type of ideas can be so much fun. Uh, people can embrace a lot of different ideas and contests and so forth. So we can definitely look forward to that. But um, check out Adam on Twitter at Skating Tripods. He's a bang the book radio. It's a week, a daily thing throughout the week. So go check that out. Lots of good info there from Adam and his guests. But uh, as always, Adam, thanks for joining me, man. Appreciate it, man. Have a good weekend. You too. And everybody has bench with Bubba episode 62. Catch you guys next week.